This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our dedicated books and comic show uh, my name is matthew rushing one of the hosts here and with me as he is always is dan gunther dan how are you doing man hey matthew doing uh, very well uh, happy to be here again this week talking a bit of star trek we're not going to make people wait dan we're going to jump right into the second part of the first book of the Worlds of Deep Space Nine series that we started last week with the Cardassian book, and this week we're going to be talking about the Andorian one by Heather Jarman um, Paradigm, and so I'm excited to be able to do that. But before that, we had a couple of things that we wanted to mention in news, and the first one, Dan, you picked up on Facebook. Yeah, that's right. Uh, on his uh, Facebook page, Dayton Ward has announced that he has finished the manuscript for his next uh, novel, this one's a sequel to From History's Shadow, and uh, he has announced that he has sent the manuscript for From History's Shadow to Temporal Boogaloo off to the publishers. Uh, he also notes that, unfortunately, that is not the title of the novel, but, you know, don't you really wish it was? Oh my gosh, can you imagine? <laughs> I'm just, am- I like the cover for that. I'm feeling like 60s psychedelic type cover you know, wouldn't it just be awesome? <laughs> that would be great. I'm also kind of wondering if that's a little bit of a hint about the content, but I don't know. Maybe something Austin Powers meets Star Trek, but that's just total guessing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I love that idea. Austin <laughs> Powers meets Star Trek meets temporal mess. Oh, my gosh. That just sounds fantastic. On the on the long list of crossovers that uh, I don't know if we're likely to see, but man, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh okay so if you have an austin powers crossover i mean it seems like to me Riker might be a good choice to kind of have the austin power type role oh for sure although although i mean you're you're giving up some really great number two references in there though i don't know that's a tough one <laughs> that is that is really tough i mean obviously you know i i, I don't know there's just something too serious about Kirk to truly be an Austin Powers style um but oh my gosh <laughs> uh, this this really is exciting I, I'm so glad that they're letting him continue that story because that book was just you know it was really unique mm-hmm. when it came to Star Trek books because it had so much in it 
that was referencing everything we love about Star Trek, and yet so much of the book takes place outside of the the universe, uh, quote-unquote, that we're used to being in. You know, I mean, because we're really on Earth in the 60s Mm -hmm. for the majority of the book, and, I mean, Kirk and company only really show up as a cameo in the end. So... I really, really look forward to seeing what Dayton has in store for us. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. No, that's uh, that was one of my favorite novels. Uh, again, for the uniqueness and just the great story that he managed to stitch together from all these disparate, you know, events that happened in the 20th century in Star Trek history. So, yeah, it'll be really, really great to see where he goes with it from here. It reminds me of the kind of thing that Doctor Who does, mm, yeah. uh, of how it ties the Doctor into these events, you know, and, you know, Star Trek has, has been pretty good about, it, you know, tying its characters into certain time periods. <laughs> but this way, the, the characters were actually kind of more important in the events, you know, and, and how it all was working together. So I'm, I'm just really excited. I, I love this idea and, and, who knows uh, maybe Dayton will have an idea for a third one as well and kind of create a, a nice trilogy. Oh, that would be really exciting for sure. Um, so I guess you have a piece of news about, uh, about one of our own uh, members of the family here. Well, this was really exciting and I've known about it for a while because Chris and I had talked about it and former co-host here, Chris has been working with uh, star trek.com for a while on the idea of doing uh, a guest blog every month. And his first guest blog is finally up on star trek.com. And, you know, we, we talk about the, the books and the comics of star Trek and, and written material. And this is really exciting that Chris is going to be doing a guest column every month called Trek Spectives and his first one was titled A Journey to Fandom and and Chris really just kind of shares what brought him to fandom and of course what the actual column is going to be about every month and I'm excited for my friend you know I he has worked so hard with our network and to see him be rewarded in this way to have this column every month I, I think is just fantastic and he does a great job of giving some great shouts out to us here at Trek FM, of course. But really, every month, this column is going to be kind of a way to explore uh, how Star Trek approaches social issues and and really kind of how that evolved over time. I mean, obviously, from what we were just talking about with the original series and how that dealt with social issues was different from, say, The Next Generation and then, of course, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. <laughs> All of these different places have kind of dealt with that in, in its own unique way. And and yet, at the same time, kind of uniquely Star Trek. And so Chris is going to be talking about that and how you know fans have kind of reacted to that, tapped into that over those different stages. And so I'm really excited to continue to read to see what Chris is going to have for us each month on, on StarTrek.com. And I mean, geez, how cool is that? <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's really cool. Uh, I, I have yet to check out his article yet, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm really excited to read what he has to say and to keep up with this article and and follow it as he writes more. So yeah, very exciting. Well, I just wanted to say congratulations to Chris and, um, you know, it couldn't have happened to a, a greater guy and, and somebody who's given me a lot through the network and I think to Star Trek fans in general. So from us at Literary Treks, Chris, we say best of luck. Definitely. 
Well, Dan, I am excited tonight because we are going to be continuing with our Deep Space Nine retrospective. We're finishing up the first book, which for everyone who remembers, the World of Deep Space Nine books came out and they had two stories in them. And so the first story that we covered was Cardassia. And so we're reading the second story in the book, uh, which is Andor, written by Heather Jarman. And, um, well, of course, we read one of her books, the this gray spirit in the mission gamma series which we both it was a very iffy book for both of us and so we'll be interested to see kind of when we round down this discussion where we kind of end up and hopefully um yeah we'll see where we go but i thought it was interesting um big thing now that we've had enterprise come out uh you know the andorian race and their planet in the books is completely different <laughs> you know um the the way the race is dealt with in in the series and enterprise um we get no hint that there are four sex species um there's really nothing to totally contradict it but it's never mentioned and then of course the biggest change is that andorians live in an ice planet whereas this is definitely not an ice planet i mean they have some parts of their planet that have ice so for you, when you're reading uh, this story, do you just let it go and just think uh, maybe this is another planet or do you just <laughs> – it doesn't matter. You're just reading the story. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things that – I mean when you've read Star Trek novels your entire life, you kind of come across this problem a lot where you know a lot of the novels are written before something in canon comes along and totally smashes it. And, you know, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, John M. Ford's depiction of the Klingons in The Final mm-hmm. Reflection or something like that, which I thought was terrific. And I loved that novel. I also love where the Klingons went in the series. So, you know, you can kind of enjoy both uh, side by side. And uh, I, I mean, I understand a lot of fans, you know, push to kind of reconcile things. But at the same time, a lot of these things can kind of stand on their own and just exist side by side maybe you can come up with some sort of in-universe alternate universes theory or something like that but you know i never even really go that far so to me this is just kind of another take on what andor or andoria could be well and that's that's an interesting thing to think of is that you know i in enterprise it is andoria Mm -hmm. um and they call the planet here the andorians refer to it as andor and so you could say that andoria was maybe the original planet and and you know andor is the planet that they colonized later on who i mean you know you could do all sorts of things like that but yeah i'm i'm with you i just kind of let it go Mm -hmm. um the thing that is most interesting is Seeing, you know, Enterprise could have had the fact that the Andorians are four-sexed, and it just not have been something we ever found out because we just didn't get enough time. I mean, we did find out about the Anar, but we never found out about this. And and why would you? I mean, I don't feel like it's something that it's pretty personal to the Andorians, a lot like Pond Far is to the Vulcans. Mm So it, it just seems like something that wouldn't be common knowledge to everybody until you really started getting to know that race. So it's it's not too 
different to kind of put that together. But one of the most fascinating parts of reading this story, I think, is the depth and the complexity of the Andorian species as a people and and their culture. I mean, this is, it is dense, just everything that goes into um, this race. And it's one of the, I think, the most fascinating things about Star Trek is when we really kind of dissect these races and see just how different they are from, you know, humans really it it Mm -hmm. just it's really cool that they are alien you know from us definitely yeah this is kind of something that like these books were billed as you know like in the tradition of spock's world or those novels that really dove into a culture uh the idea that these books would be really exploring one of the worlds of deep space nine and you know of all of these stories i actually think this one is the kind of kind of the one that lives up to that idea the most in that it really delves deep into you know the culture well the cultures i should say of andor or andoria again i'm kind of hung up on that but whatever uh you know and and it really does showcase this different world and shows that the people there aren't just humans with you know, makeup appliances on them and that sort of thing. They really do have a different way of looking at things and a different idea of right or wrong or, you know, what their values are for sure. Yeah, that's a, I think a really, really good point. And, you know, you didn't have to do as much of that with the Cardassians because obviously, um, you know, we had seen so much of that. And so what, Una is able to do and in the book about Cardassia is really to build upon everything we've already seen so there Mm -hmm. isn't as much legwork you know Heather is really having to dive deep into what it means to be you know uh, a part of the Andorian race um you know, we're diving into uh, bits of their religion, their bits of their um, culture that's uh, been in existence for a very long time. Uh, the progressive part of their culture, the um, the conservative part of their culture, and and how those interact, their planet itself, all of these things. You know, lots and lots of world building. And if there's anything in this book that's really good, it's this aspect. I think is is fascinating. It's it's it, and it's, I think, probably the best part of the story um, mm-hmm. because it's really interesting and, um, you know, for all that we saw of the Andorians in the original series, which wasn't much, <laughs> and then, of course, what we kind of found out in Enterprise, which was great but still not a ton, um, you know, this is really the place I feel like we we kind of understand them the most is through the novels and Interestingly enough, the Andorians do get a mention on Deep Space Nine every once in a while, but we never see an Andorian on Enterprise until the books Mm -hmm. and Char shows up. And um, so it's funny that when you do the series, the the worlds of Deep Space Nine, it's not a world of Deep Space Nine that we saw in the series. Hmm. You know, it's it's not characters we saw in the series. So that's a really interesting thing that... This character and and the Andorians had become such an important part of the Deep Space Nine relaunch that they're able to do, well, we're going to Andor and everybody's like, of course we are because, (laughs) you know, but you don't even think until you start to recollect, well, but that 
they were really even part of the you know the actual series. So it's amazing how much this book series has done to make itself a part of the Deep Space Nine legacy, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's a really special thing, and it's something that um, I think set apart Star Trek books once the Deep Space Nine relaunch had happened, because um, they were, in all intents and purposes, adding to the Star Trek canon at that point. It, it, it's not canon, we're not saying that, but, the, you know, once <laughs> especially... The canon you know, police vo- <laughs> yeah. One especially since Voyager ended in there, uh, and then Enterprise ended, there hasn't been anything else in the Prime Universe except for the use of Prime Spock. You know, this is again we say it all the time. This is the only place to get new stories in the Prime Universe, and so for a majority of Star Trek fans who read these books, I think we really kind of think of these as the continuation. You know, um, and I, I, it's amazing to me as I reread these stories how much of it I just kind of think of as Deep Space Nine these days, even though it wasn't part of Deep Space Nine, <laughs> you know, the the actual series. Yeah. No, it really is a testament to how well, you know, uh, most of these books that take place after the series have really carried forward that, that feel and particular kind of uh, – Je ne sais quoi of Deep Space Nine. You know, it really feels like an extension of the series. And within that, you know, Char has really become one of my favorite characters that they've added. And I mean, you know, my opinion on that will change from time to time. I'll read a particular Vaughn uh, chapter and I'll think, oh man, he's just my favorite character. But, you know, that that really just says how well these books are written that, you know, Char, I, I love that guy. He's Deep Space Nine to me now just as much as, you know, Kira Bashir or Nog or Odo or any of the rest of them. It is a testament to the writers. And I think that something you had hit on just a few minutes back that I wanted to pick up on was the idea of alien races being alien. And... I see a lot of time on message boards and things like that where an alien race or, you know, some force in in the Star Trek galaxy is really held to human values or beliefs. And, you know, I'm always so surprised to see so many Star Trek fans who, you know, for a majority of them um, would hold to an evolutionary view of life and that... Because of that, really, in the end, um, for them, values and, and ethics are culturally mandated and, and not something that go beyond that, that they would really judge, you know, an alien race by our human values as if we would have the right to judge them and, and you know, that some force or some uh, alien race should be beholden to what we think is right. You know, uh, that has always shocked me because Star Trek is is really the antithesis to that, which is idic that, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. So, you know, what works for Deltons or what works for Andorians or uh, what works for humans is not going to be the same, nor should it be and nor should we expect it to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really big part of this book as well, the um, the kind of myopic view of humanity towards other races, which we really see play out with Prin and her struggles with uh, understanding Andorians and, and how they view themselves and their whole, you know, view of life, really. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, some of my favorite parts of this book was kind of, you know, when they're on the run and uh, they're kind of experiencing, or she's kind of experiencing different parts of this world. And and through Char's eyes, it's just like, yeah, this is, you know, this is what they do here. And she's kind of blown away by it all. But, you know, of course, we, the reader, take the place of her and are seeing Andor through her eyes and, and kind of experiencing this strangeness for the first time, but really getting immersed in it and um, experiencing it firsthand. And, you know, how would a human react to that and that sort of thing? I thought that was pretty cool. Well, and it, it makes for, um, again, you know, when you're reading these Worlds of Deep Space Nine books, it is showing us that um, just because they don't do things the way we do as human, humans um, and they don't think the way that we do as, as humans, doesn't it doesn't make them um, wrong or bad or anything like that. Or um, it makes them alien to us, you know, and um, it their values then or the way that they live their lives um, for them should have as much validity, especially, well, and and we put it this way in the Star Trek universe. Mm -hmm. Um, So, because, you know, for me personally and my own beliefs, you know, that is a, is a different viewpoint, you know? Um, But with, when it comes to understanding the principles of the Star Trek universe and, and how it plays out, you know, I'm I'm much more forgiving of alien races because I have to remember that in this universe, they shouldn't be playing by our rules. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Federation and Star Trek in general has, I think, sometimes a bad habit of painting alien races or or anyone else in a in a bad light that doesn't necessarily agree with the human way of thinking of doing things that we've kind of culturally culturally considered you know for eons to be the way that we do stuff you know mm-hmm. so yeah it's really interesting um but i i like that this book brings up that especially like the idea of of andorians spending so much of their time and energy trying to survive which make means making family and children everything to them and so they put aside their you know personal differences uh and their personal concerns and i mean in the end andorians probably are the most socialistic of the i think societies you see in in star trek which makes it for a really interesting thing but they they have to be to survive you know they have to put aside the individual for the whole and um because if they don't, they're going to die as a species so it makes again it's just so interesting mm. um great thought-provoking things that we're so used to getting from Deep Space Nine in the first place. Yeah. And I mean, biologically speaking, you know, if four of them have to come together to create a family and to ensure the next, you know, generation of their species thrives, that that makes a lot of sense that you would you would have to put, you know, family first and, and you know, emphasize that sort of thing culturally, kind of as a byproduct of the evolution of, you know, where where evolution has brought their species to this point. Well, <laughs> and there's a great scene where um, Prin is is um, being introduced to the area in which the common area for sleeping, and she's talking to one of the characters, and she says something to the effect of, y'all are all in this together, <laughs> you know, with the, 
the Andorians. And I just expected, you know, her to bust out into a high school musical number, <laughs> you know, start singing, we're all in this together, have some, you know, Andorians doing a high kick or something. Oh, yeah, Andor- great. Andorian chorus line. Oh, man. Yeah, oh, been the whole thing. awesome. That's what we need more in books, Andorian chorus lines. Uh, they all turn into brawls, though, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, Andorian say. fight scenes break out. <laughs> An Andorian chorus line turns into the inevitable Andorian fight scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, on top of, of this idea of, of the values and everything, you know, a huge part of this book is the eggs that Shar brought back from the Gamma Quadrant have been used to research the biological Andorian problem of creating families and the struggle that their race has been having for their foursomes to actually conceive and the struggle even to have more than one child at a time and for those foursomes to actually have uh, success of having more than one child just in general, you know, um, and it really diminishing their race. And so the big question in this book and the problem is, is that it's come out that a certain group of scientists are actually trying to use this genetic material to re-engineer the species to be a two-sexed race mm. so that they can really basically, you know, double their chances in the end. Um, and really bringing about the questions of biology and and how that affects the culture around us, you know. Um, and it was a really interesting discussion. Um I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure how applicable it is to the real world, um, but the idea of, okay, what if what if humanity had to find a new way to, to procreate, and the only way to do that was to, you know, w- the only thing I could think of is, okay, what if we had to become four mm-hmm. as a group, to you know, and, yeah. and our whole species was re-engineered. Uh, how would we deal with that? Well, it would change everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I seemed like an interesting allegory and it almost was, I felt maybe trying to talk about, you know, alternate um, ways that we've found to, you know, increase fertility or that sort of thing, or provide mm-hmm. children yeah. to couples who couldn't have children. Uh did it really get there as far as a good allegory goes? I don't know. It kind of seemed a little tenuous at times, but uh, at the same time, you know, kind of raised some interesting big questions as they apply to the Andorians. How well does it cross over into, you know, the realm of science fiction allegory, you know, making us look at things in our own life in a different way? I'm not sure that it ever really got there for me. But I could kind of see where maybe she was trying to go with that. Well, and one of the neat things is is that, you know, good stories in sci-fi don't always have to be perfect allegories for us. Mm-hmm. They can just be really interesting stories. And I think that's what was great about the story there is that I felt like it was just a really interesting story. Like, I, I didn't... Um, I didn't really necessarily need it to be an allegory so much because there's so much other allegory going on mm-hmm. in the story. This specific part could just be the problem for the Endurance. Right. You know? Yeah. And that's interesting enough. Um, 
And it was a really interesting thing because um, even just the idea of, of what if something cataclysmic happened and, you know, we had to change our entire society to survive mm. um, and how would that re- reaction, you know, flow through the societies that we have here, you know, the progressive societies, the conservative societies and all of that uh, down the line. Um you know, we, we do see some allegory there for just how we live our lives, whether it's in politics or anything else. Yeah, just maybe so, and like it, fundamental change in general yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't have to be quite so earth shattering, but there's still plenty of areas where you can kind of see it being an allegory for us. And I like that. Um, but at the same time, I think it was it's just an interesting sci-fi problem mm-hmm. for just that you know, universe. And that's good enough because it just creates a good story. Yeah. And sometimes that's all we need. <laughs> Definitely. And yeah, um, this particular story, the, the Andorian reproductive problem uh, in Star Trek novels, I think if you kind of look at the year that they first mentioned it and then carried it forward through, you know, solving the problem in the recent fall miniseries, uh, it went over a decade that this story has kind of become a part of Star Trek literature. And yeah, that's kind of a testament to how fascinating this story is. And specifically, you know, talking about things like fundamentally changing your biology. Well, that's that's something that like I had a hard time kind of coming down on one side or the other, really, because if your species is dying, if you are facing extinction within, you know, a couple generations at the most, you know, how could you not do everything possible to put that off? But at the same time, you know, if you quote unquote destroy what you're trying to save, is that really saving it? So it's it's a really fascinating debate that I really had a hard time, you know, coming down on one side of. Yeah. I, I'm. I. I think that I'm with you, and and I like the ambiguity of that part of the story. So it just does kind of leave you continuing to think about the issue, and I think that makes for a strong storyline. Mm-hmm. You know, and and like you said, that's why it kind of lasts so long. On top of other you know reasons beyond you know publisher control, of <laughs> being able to you know. Uh, find a way to weave it in and and wrap it up a little more quickly. So, yeah. Um, For me, this story, you know, this is really about um, Prin, and and it's really about Char as much as it is about the Andorian reproductive problem. You know, they're finally coming to a head with their relationship. And um, for you, how did that work? I mean... Did you did you like that part of the story? Did it does it work for you? Especially since it's kind of been building for quite some time. Um, even I think you know honestly, it it's the seeds were kind of planted in uh, Avatar of them kind of first meeting and and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it is kind of set up as the ultimate, you know, star-crossed lovers thing. You know, Shar has these family obligations and he can't. He isn't free, basically, to pursue what he wants. And Prin, 
you know, I'm, I have a hard time kind of seeing where she comes from exactly. It, it's kind of like she gets infatuated with Char and follows him around and hopes something happens. And I don't know. I have a hard time kind of getting behind her motivation here other than, you know, a bit of a schoolgirl crush kind of thing, which I think was kind of cheapening to her character a little bit. It felt a little bit... um what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit superficial almost that, you know, there didn't seem to be anything deeper to it other than, you know, just a fascination with Char and, you know, interest in something new and different. And maybe there was more to it than that, but we never really got that. We were never really shown that. So I, yeah, I'm kind of lukewarm on this whole relationship between the two of them and where it turns out and where it ends up and that sort of thing. Yeah, I like to think of this as the Prin problem, um, <laughs> and I really do. And you know, I mentioned High School Musical earlier, and I, I feel like that this story could have just been called "Endore in High School Musical" because <laughs> that's how I feel about the romance that's going on between these two. It's so cliched. It's so one note. Um, it's just not well written here. And like you said, I think it is degrading to Prin's character because the only focus for her in the story is her relationship with Char. She doesn't have any other real reason to be here. And whereas it would have been stronger to me almost if she had just come here for his friend, but she's got this quasi-romantic thing going on with him that's never ever culminated in anything. Um, other than a kiss and some dancing. I mean, seriously, um, it feels like, you know, a lame high school romance and a dance and a kiss, and then I, yeah, it just doesn't really work. And, um, you know, call me a feminist, but I, I kind of like, <laughs> I'd like to have Prin's character have more reason for existing on Deep Space Nine than just the romance that she's not going to get with Char. Um, <laughs> you and kind really of want that's, her character treated like every other character should be treated, really. Yeah, on D- <laughs> and especially on Deep Space Nine. None of the other characters have really been this one note. I mean, God, even Lita never was this one note. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like she had a storyline that didn't involve any romances until it did involve some romances, you know, with Bashir and then and then with Rom and then but even with that, she had other storylines going on, you know, and so I was just very disappointed, especially coming from Heather Jarman here, uh, writing the story, that there's nothing further for Prin's character to do. And then of course, you know, she's all dejected and everything by the end laying on the beach you know pouting and she just spends a lot of time pouting in this book (laughs) um and uh yeah i expect more from a starfleet officer than to just have petulant teenage behavior Mm -hmm. yeah no there's definitely it, it definitely left a bad taste in my mouth and you know kind of after finishing reading it and looking back on it and realizing that yeah why did she come to andor what was the whole point of that other than you know puppy love over char and it's just yeah it's it's incredibly disappointing well and if if the romance between them had been built differently and the problem is is that the storyline hasn't where char is he's never been fully able to really commit to anything because he's still grieving for his bond mates Mm -hmm. and, and everything that's gone on with 
uh, Fist dying and everything that's gone on with that, with his family, with his mother. And so, I mean, it's just been an intense period in his history. And yeah, I, I just felt like too, and I get this, I really do, I really get where Prin's character is is that you know you're there to help somebody and you fall for them and they're just not ready for you it's happened to me too many times mm-hmm. you know in life um and uh you know he kind of likes her but he's not going to be in a position to be there for her until you know for much later and and then of course the way the book wraps up Shar ends up staying on Andoria with a new group of bond mates mm-hmm. you know um and so which was really an interesting storyline for him. And so everything revolving around Char that doesn't have to do from, with Prin, I think, is is fairly well done. It just really drags uh, down the book, the, the bad storytelling here, and it's frustrating. And, you know, you were talking about, uh, in her outline, the idea of the evolution of character. And, you know, when you have these new characters, you have the freedom to do lots of things you know it's not like those old numbered novels where you know what's going to happen um by the end here this is a big change for both of these characters um where do you rank where they end up and do you like kind of the resolution for them well it was really interesting to me um like you say you know these new characters that you know, aren't the canon characters. So the writers have a little bit more freedom to kind of do with them what they will. And uh, I I do have to admit, reading this story, I didn't expect Char to end up staying behind on Andor. Uh, And it was an interesting place to take his character. Um, A little bit sad because I really like his character and I'd like to see him more on Deep Space Nine. But it also makes a lot of sense for you know, what they had set up for his character and where they had, they had taken him. Um, you know, as much of a free spirit as Char is, and as much as you kind of root for him to follow his own path, he's also a fundamentally good character. And I think in the end, him kind of doing his duty for Andor, um, you know, makes a lot of sense for his character and really, uh, stays true to the kind of ideals that he seems to embody. Like he's he's not a total jerk that's going to totally turn his back on his planet kind of thing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's not going to do something that doesn't feel right for him. And I think this feels right for him. So I really liked where his character went. Prin, on the other hand, of course, you know, has been pining for Char all this time. And then, like you said, ends up kind of pouty and dejected on the beach. Uh, which, you know, again, with these characters, you can create relationships and break them in a way you couldn't with the canon characters in the old days of the novels. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, I I wasn't as big a fan of where her character ended up. (laughs) You know, it's been really interesting to watch Char evolve. And what I thought was really nice is that he had those moments of he was going to go back to his bond mates. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was planning on doing that. And then, you know, with the tragedy of this taking her life really took that away from him and he didn't think he would ever get to experience that again. And so, um, it wasn't just that he was being, you know, hard headed. Um, even his, you know, his mother realizes that he's always been searching for the answers to help Andor. he was, mm-hmm. he was sacrificing the needs of the, 
you know, um, one for the many. And uh, that's really what his, his goal has been. And so for him to kind of find himself in a place where he naturally gets this new group of bondmates, I thought was a really cool place. It's, it's almost the reward for him, you know, for all that he had given up and he thought he had given up. So I love the 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 resolution for his character there. And, you know, Prin is different. Um, you know, I, I honestly... Uh, I'm trying to remember where she goes in the future, and I feel like that she has a much harder time of it um, because her father gets attacked and and almost dies and then will die. And, (laughs) you know, she just has a really tough time of it um, and never really finds the... Her life never gets happier. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping maybe in the future that she'll get some happiness but yeah her her story goes from kind of bad to worse honestly yeah um, it, it yeah definitely <laughs> there's there's not a lot to uh to kind of give her character a lot of happiness in the future yeah so hopefully we'll end up in a different spot well we we did this for the Cardassian book and you know it was funny as I, I was trying to rate this entire book because there's only one way to do that on Goodreads and mm-hmm. I had to come down um in a certain place because each of the stories is completely different. And so um, the Cardassian book, I think we both rated very, very highly. And for you, where does Paradigm end up for you, the, in this Andorian-specific um, novel that's really part of the other novel and it makes it one? So, yeah, but we've been rating them <laughs> as separately. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really wish there was that kind of option on Goodreads but of course you know Goodreads doesn't know that it's two stories in one book so yeah it doesn't really uh, work out that way there this story there were parts of it that I really enjoyed Uh, I really liked the exploration of Andor and its culture Um, you know and a lot of fans like we talked about earlier would get stuck on the fact that canon later changed it and you know andor of the of enterprise isn't the andor of the novel but you know i really enjoyed that i thought i thought heather jarman did a great job of you know creating a unique culture that wasn't just a bunch of humans uh and yeah i really liked those aspects of exploring the nooks and crannies of this place some of the character work left a little bit to be desired. Um, I liked a lot of what they did with Char. As we've said, I didn't like what they did with Prin. Um, but on the whole, I kind of came away from this book uh, in a, with a favorable view of it. So um, I think my rating would have to be, um, I'd say, three out of five uh, Eurythne eggs. <laughs> yeah, for me... Um... The story is really bogged down by a whole half of it that just doesn't work very well. And it's it's frustrating because the rest of what's being done here is very good. There is a, a, also an issue for me with um, the writing style um, and that some of the transitions for the storylines doesn't work so well for me. So it can be confusing sometimes and in general the Andorians with all the different terms and everything like that as well, you, this, this needs 
ultimate clarity because it it can be a little bit confusing even for somebody who's read this book before the Andorian species is very complex and and so um it's just not as good as it needs to be and uh I'm with you you know I'd say that half of this book is four stars the other half of this book out of five the other half of this book is two stars and so it's it's a three-star book but that's pushing it for me um i'm i'm just and i'm frustrated that i have to say that um because there's so much that i enjoy here but there's also so much that i was just like oh please please stop just no don't don't go there no okay it would be better if they broke out into song um so (laughs) um yeah, it would help it if this was actually just a Dorian High School musical, but it's not. So, um, yeah, I I think, though, on a whole, what it does do for the Dorian species is really interesting. And, and, of course, that won't get followed up at all until Paths of Disharmony, Dayton Ward's book there in the Typhon Pack series, which turns out to be uh, just one of my favorite books in that series because of everything they do. Um, so we won't spoil it here because... We'll talk about that one sometime. (laughs) Well, Matthew, that was a really good discussion about Andor Paradigm from Worlds of Deep Space Nine. Kind of not quite up to the same standards as the Cardassia story, but, you know, still an interesting look at Andor and its people, I thought. Yeah, you know, uh, we both, I think, really in this show we're we're trying to be as positive as we can and, and we're not going to lie to you sometimes when the books don't meet the expectations that we like to have especially when we came off talking about the Cardassian story which was just so fantastic and, and of course it's Una McCormick and so you don't really expect anything less um, and I was frustrated because so far you know Heather Jarman's really striking out for me in in this series so um, I'm I'm much more trepidatious and picking up any more of her Star Trek novels because I'm just like, I just haven't liked the two that I've read by her enough to really want to go out and pick up another one. So it'll be interesting if we come across another one of hers later on down the road. But I think this book, you know, the Cardassian story and the Andorian story, definitely worth reading because there's some big things that do happen in both of the stories. Mm -hmm. They're going to be very important in the Star Trek future uh, uh, in this storyline. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, it has been a blast. Honestly, it just, I love getting to talk Star Trek books, but it's not the only thing that we've been doing this past week here on Trek FM. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM standard orbit. And I'm wondering if it's because the comic book writers didn't understand what the filmmakers were doing or whether it was because the comic book writers wrote themselves into a corner or whether it was because the comic book writers wanted to open their stories up to more possibilities. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. This year, opening for five-year mission is Del Rock. Del Rock. Del Rock. They'll rock your world. Bajoran style. The ready room. 
I do like that he just drops out of the sky naked. That is the perfect way to introduce Q. And then just before we cut to the credits, they get this great shot of him looking up at Picard and he's like, hey, what up? To the journey! My question is, what would Janeway have in place of banana pancakes? Because that's Bolana's thing. Would Janeway's be coffee ice cream? I was just about to say coffee ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> my, my lips my lips were forming the syllables to say coffee <laughs> ice cream. Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full. And I had forgotten the fact that the future guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. I know that both of us will come out of it okay, but since Matthew is not used to sparring with either of us, I'm afraid that he's going to be a bloody mess lying on the floor of the 602 Club. The 602 Club. You know, that's Bryce Dallas Howard's decision. She wanted to do that. She made the decision that the the character wouldn't get out of these heels, which to me said... This character has changed some, like she has learned some things, but there are some things about her that are not going to change. Literary treks. You know, Bajor getting through the occupation with its faith, and this faith kind of coming back in Cardassia and helping them kind of get through, you know, their darkest hour. Yeah, I definitely do like kind of how it's come full circle. Axanar, the official podcast. I tried different action figures. Uh, I tried Black Widow. I tried the Black Widow from uh, uh, the, the Hot Toys Black Widow. Too small. It wouldn't work with really? the other action. Yeah, it didn't, didn't photograph quite. But, but tell everyone why you're photographing action for you. Women at Warp. So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and bones. Yes, definitely. Of course bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Guys, check out these shows. Find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And, of course, with the 602 Club beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Guys, if you're an Apple user, you know, a majority, I was just looking at our stats the other day for our shows um, and seeing where they get downloaded from. And, honestly, 80% of people, pretty much 80% of people get their podcasts from Apple in some way, shape, or form. And so if you really have a passion for what we do and would just like to see our shows continue to grow um, and and see more people, you know, find them and love listening to them. I mean, Dan and I were just talking about this is the only place on the network we're talking about new Star Trek. Um, we get the new Star Trek comics as we talked about this week. We, we get the new Star Trek comics as we talked about. Uh, just almost it seems like almost every week we're getting something new there and then of course we've got the new star trek books where we get to talk to the authors so you know hit that subscribe button uh, give us a star rating and review we'd love to hear what you think about the show that way and it really helps us be more visible uh, and more people find the show don't worry if you're not an apple user you can find the shows on stitcher TuneIn, spreaker soundcloud windows phone and of course you can stream and download those mp3 files from the website and grab the rss link as well and of course you can share the shows with a myriad of those places uh, on your social media you can do it um if you want people to know more about them there you can you can rate and review there if that's where you listen you can help us out in a million different ways. And honestly, one of the best ways is becoming a patron of the network through Patreon. And 
Many people I don't think understand this, but we are a listener-supported network, uh, a lot like PBS. Without you, we can't make this happen. It does cost us a lot. In fact, I was just talking to a listener the other day on Facebook, and he was kind of asking me what some of the costs are that go into literary tracks. And, of course, Dan and I have the cost of comics. We have the cost of the books that we read. Um, We have the cost of the space that we use um, online of hosting the podcast and all the other things that go along with running the network. It's really expensive, and we can't make this happen without you guys. And so if you'd like to help us out, we really appreciate it. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Um, you can find all the goals we have. We have different milestone contribution levels. We do have some great perks for you. We've we've got exclusive content. Um, you get early access to the shows, which um, my associate producers here on the show get early access. They get the first listen to Literary Treks before anybody else. Producer credit seats on the content development team. And honestly, guys, we have got some seriously awesome stuff in the works for our Patreon members. Um, I'd tell you... But then the management team here at Trek FM would kill me. So uh, just look, be on the lookout for that. We really do appreciate your support so much. Um, just look for all those details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Guys, we'd love for you to contact us about the show. Uh, send back your feedback on what you think about the, the, the stories that we're reading and everything else. Go to trek.fm slash contact. You could leave us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar on the show page. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. The Babel Conference site, uh, Babel into the search field on Facebook or go to the website. Just click discussion on the menu bar there from trek.fm. And then, of course, we're in Goodreads. We've got the bookshelves there that let you know what we're currently reading so you know what to be reading to be current with us. We know what's coming up on the future shows. Plus, the bookshelves also have a list of all the books and most of the comics that we've covered on every show here. And some great discussions going on there in the message boards. I'd like to thank our associate producers. Um, these are the Patreon members who really help this show keep coming to you each week. We've got Will Wynn. Of course, he's on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn. He's a big supporter of the network. He's our content manager here at the network. So appreciative of him. And, of course, Ken Tripp as well. Guys, thank you so much for supporting us through Patreon and supporting Literary Treks. Dan, when you're not trying to get away to that little surfing nook on Andoria with Prin, where can we find you? Well, Matthew, uh, you can find me online. My website is www.treklet.com, and there I write written reviews of Star Trek novels, both old and new. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Treklet Reviews, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reviews. And uh, you can find me kicking around the Babel Conference, you know, commenting on various posts there and posting interesting things about Star Trek novels and Star Trek books, because that's what I love. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be one note or anything, but there you are. No, 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 I would never (laughs) consider that. And Matthew, when you're not exploring the seedy underbelly of Andor with uh, Prin, she kind of uh, is busy with the both of us, I guess. Uh, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can find me talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine on the Orb with Christopher Jones. And so if you enjoy hearing uh, Deep Space Nine talk, join us over there. You can find me on the 602 Club 
talking about all things geeky. Um, we've had some amazing shows recently. We've been covering uh, the Jurassic Park series, which has been a, a total blast. Uh, you know, talking about uh, Clone Wars with uh, the editor of the Clone Wars. I mean, just some great shows. So join us there every week for something fun. And of course, you can find me uh, on my own personal blog where I do movie reviews and book reviews and other things of that nature at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that, light reading? To each his own, number one.